found this kind of common theme throughout my whole career, which I'm sure everybody, I think everybody will agree, is that there's a staff shortage and it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. So about four years ago, I sort, I sort of decided I was going to focus my efforts on that. So at that time, I gathered together some finance and I uh, moved to back to the UK and built a business called Boxed Off, which is where we rented a farm in Leicestershire, uh, built like a fairly big central kitchen in one of the barns there. And the idea was that we would send refrigerated vans between Leicester and London every morning. And if you were running a restaurant in London, you wanted to do your own food. You didn't want to buy like, you know, predetermined like breaks products. You wanted to do your own food, your own recipes. You could upload them to us. And in our prep kitchen, we would prepare your mise en place and deliver it to your restaurant every morning the way you want it. So that you wouldn't need prep chefs anymore. You just hire people for service and we would take care of all the mise en place. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, a hospitality-specific podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma and conversations designed to inspire a new, healthier, happier, and more sustainable hospitality profession. This week's guest is James Sharman. James reached out to me or us on social media with quite an interesting proposal in terms of how we actually start to look at addressing the resource crisis in hospitality. He owns three restaurants in Malaysia and he has quite an interesting background actually having started up like a mise en place a remote mise en place company that takes mise en place away from restaurants which unfortunately saw the demise during covid but he bounced back and set some restaurants up in malaysia and he talks to us about a lot about economics and a lot about economy so if this is the first time you're looking into economics and looking into currencies and value and inflation then you might want to break this down into a couple of sections but it's a really really interesting talk we do talk about cryptocurrencies and the role that they might play in long-term retention and a more longer-term view of careers within hospitality but it's a really really well-rounded conversation it's not a sales pitch and it's definitely one that I think some of you out there would would enjoy a little bit different from our normal so I'll get started straight away the burnt chef project is proudly sponsored by lamb western a leading provider of innovative high quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and tomorrow Working carefully with sustainably-minded farmers and growers, Lamb Weston provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes, wedges, and mash. To find out more, head to lambweston.eu or search your partner in potatoes. So, this is not usually I've at least had a conversation with the guests um, before they come on and um, this is a bit of a curveball for me because I know that you reached out via uh, social media originally mm-hmm. well a few bits that you wanted to discuss and usually we sort of we tend to curate the guests that we have on but something had sparked sparked our interest and uh, Vicky said you've got to speak to this guy he's uh, he's interesting so I'm joined for those who are listening which is hopefully quite a few still um, I'm joined by uh, James Sharman um, James I'm taking it from our pre-discussion you're not in the UK at the moment uh, no I'm in Taiwan right now 
Taiwan. Okay. So straight off the bat, what on earth are you doing in Taiwan? Uh, well, I, I run restaurants here. Uh, so I have uh, three restaurants here. Um, we're working on a supermarket in Malaysia at the minute. Okay. Three restaurants. And how long have you had those mm -hmm. restaurants for? One of them for five years, one of them for two years, and one of them is just opening, and opening right now, like the next few weeks. Amazing. And uh, okay, so straight away, straight off the bat, what, what is it that drove you to opening up restaurants in Malaysia? I would say, like, I'm a chef. I grew up, in, I'll give you like just two minute backstory. I was born in Leicester. And mm -hmm. uh, like pretty much everyone on this podcast, you grow up, you get a job, you start washing up, you move through restaurants. And uh, I moved to London when I was 18, uh, worked for Tom Akins for four or five years, uh, and then a little bit of time at Noma, and then started to travel to different countries. We did this project called One Star House Party, where a bunch of friends and I would like land in a new country where none of us had ever been at the beginning of a month. And we'd give ourselves three weeks to travel around, learn everything we could, and then we would build and open a pop-up restaurant for the last week of each month and sell tickets. So we'd make like a, imagine we all just rocked up in Mumbai, rented a big Airbnb for the last week of the month. And then we build a tasting menu out of everything we've learned and then open a restaurant, sell tickets and serve our interpretation of what we found back to the locals. So we did that in 14 different countries and it really opened our eyes in terms of like uh, where you could go, who you could meet, what kind of businesses you might build. But I found this kind of common theme throughout my whole career, which I'm sure everybody, I think everybody will agree, is that there's a staff shortage and it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. So about four years ago, I, saw, I sort of decided I was going to focus my efforts on that. So at that time, I gathered together some finance and I uh, moved to, back to the UK and built a business called Boxed Off, which is where... We rented a farm in Leicestershire, uh, built like a fairly big central kitchen in one of the barns there. And the idea was that we would send refrigerated vans between Leicester and London every morning. And if you were running a restaurant in London, you wanted to do your own food. You didn't want to buy like, you know, predetermined like breaks products. You wanted to do your own food, your own recipes. You could upload them to us. And in our prep kitchen, we would prepare your mise en place and deliver it to your restaurant every morning the way you want it so that you wouldn't need prep chefs anymore you just hire people for service and we would take care of all the mise en place but but really accurately like exactly what you want you know you could buy pick time from us like you buy anything anything you want your own recipes and uh i thought oh, okay this is a good way to solve this staff shortage because it's getting worse and worse and worse and it went really well in the beginning and uh, we were adding like we added a new client every two three weeks and so when we enrolled a restaurant into what we were doing, we would become their only supplier. So before you might've had, you know, like 10 different suppliers, two for fish, three for veg, two for meat, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. With us, we would become your only supplier because all your prep is done and we're buying everything at scale. So we get a better price on the ingredients. The restaurant gets a better overall price on what they would have paid for staff costs in London, plus ingredients, plus everything else. Mm -hmm. But the problem came uh, when I was giving all these restaurants 30 days credit and the rest of the business was growing really quickly. So we had 12 restaurants and then uh, along came COVID and I thought I was really smart and I thought I'd built this really good idea. But when COVID came about, I realized I built kind of like a bank and I'd lent out a lot of money or value to 12 different restaurants. Mm -hmm. And then when COVID came along, all those restaurants just switched off and I lost everything on a Tuesday. 
uh, and just got wiped out. Fuck. Yeah, it was rough. Uh, but I did still have a restaurant in Taiwan uh, that right. I'd opened, kind of, that I was like a consultant chef for, and I was like going back and changing the menus. And uh, so I came back out to Asia and just kind of just rebuilt everything starting over. But I still felt this staff shortage thing was the problem in the industry generally. In all mm. these countries, all these places that we went, it's just the same problem everywhere, mate. And there's no, it's just unrelenting. You know, so, so I started to study economics, had some free time during COVID. And uh, I did like a couple different degrees in different types of economics because there's a lot of opposing views in the field. Yep. And, uh, and I, I, I actually think, I honestly, as, as mad as it sounds, I think I've worked it out. I really do. I'm so sure about the cause. I have a solution that I'm trying out. I, nobody can be sure if I'm right or not, but mm -hmm. I'm really sure about the problem. So I'm hoping we can kind of run through that today and see if other people think there's some value to it, see if they think it's right. And because uh, it's like a, it's a really weird concept and you would need to understand the restaurant industry really well and a few different schools of economics really well to piece it together. Okay. So I think this is one of the reasons why my team said that we should talk because they know that sort of <clears throat> by, by day I'm, Mr. Burnt Chef. By night, I uh, I trade forex and commodities and various. This other is going to be amazing. So I'm despite my interest. Firstly, I mean the fucking idea that you had to begin with. Can I just say it was actually like a really really class idea. <clears throat> oh, like cheers. to be able to get restaurants as well to hand over their recipes and trust you with something that you know with a lot of I think. A lot of chefs out there would be like, there's no way I'm letting someone else do my prep. What happens if, you know, it's shit and stuff. But to be able mm. to get an economy of scale and to identify that that was actually something that businesses needed was was a really, really class idea. Like, really mm. class idea. I'm sorry it didn't work that. out as... Uh, yeah. I, I mean, COVID's fucked everything up, really, didn't it? Like, um, yeah. but... Um, so, okay, I'm just going to dive straight into it. Hit, hit me with it. Go just... Take it from the top. Let me know what, what you think. What you Are you think sure? Of. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's go. All right. All right. So how would you, do you – I think it might be the best way is if, I, if, if we go through it together because for people listening, we can kind of walk through some basic concepts. So, like, how would you define inflation? Oh, God. Inflation. Well, how do you think most people would? Well, inflation is obviously prices going up, isn't it? But, I mean, ultimately it's – Inflation is driven by governments in order to be able to try and balance out deficits within books, ultimately. Mm -hmm. But if you think of it in terms of individuals, right, because, I mean, eventually, ultimately, we're all just individuals. You can say there's a government, there's people, whatever, but mm -hmm. we're all individual people. I would say inflation is there's more units of a currency measuring everything in the economy. So mm -hmm. simply put, if you've got a town with 100 houses, and a thousand pounds and the mayor comes along and prints a thousand pounds and adds it what happens to the price of the houses well it, deval it devalues the currency right so like you had in well the houses go up but like you had in certain parts of africa for example where people were paying like a million pounds for a loaf of bread is because they pumped the economy full of money which mm. then ultimately brought the average value of that pound or whatever that currency denomination was down which is inflation right relative to other things but like you could look at this a bunch of different ways and and you realize that 
we in the UK are also living in that kind of situation, but it's just taking longer. Mm-hmm. So like uh, a, a good example I thought of recently is uh, the price of a three-bed semi in Clapham today, a hundred years ago, you could have bought a brand new battleship. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Like it's, it, it's not 2%, 3% a year. It's doubling, 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 doubling every 10 years. It's like our so, parents, right? They used to earn 25, 30 quid a week, mm-hmm. which now for, you know, for certainly some agency staff would be an hourly rate. So although yeah. the monetary value to us hasn't changed, the actual value of that currency has completely and utterly just been blown out of the water, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when you start to pull in a lot of examples, it, it really hits you how confused we have become about value and money. So I'm going to just give a couple modern examples just so people can kind of clue in. And then I'll go back to the beginning, I think. So mm-hmm. like if you guys remember when COVID started, around like COVID started in, I've really studied COVID because it really wrecked me. So I've like, obsessed over it. But uh, when it started, uh, when we started to hand out money, when we started to give everybody money, if you remember, in the news, we were talking about, oh, wow, the price of used cars is going up 30%. And mm-hmm. the price of beef is going up 30% and tomatoes and gas and electricity and holidays and flights and everything was going up 20, 30, 40%. And we were doing like acrobats on the news. We were acrobats on the news and it was like a, like a Cirque du Soleil to try and explain uh, all these different reasons why all these different things were going up in price. But the reality mm-hmm. was we just printed 30% more pounds, dished it into the economy. And so when you have 30% more pounds measuring the same economy, then it's simply it, the value of everything stays the same relative to each other, but the value of everything relative to the currency that's just had 30% added to it is, of course, 30% different. Mm-hmm. And all these things take time to come through, like houses will go slightly more slowly than used cars because you can buy a used car more quickly than you can buy a house, right? But yeah. like a can of tomato soup, that's going to take maybe a year because you've got, they've already bought the tins, they've paid the graphic designers to design the labels and blah, 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 blah. There's like 30 steps, 10 countries, five currencies in that, in that, like that kind of journey that that goes on. Cost of manufacturing at the time would have meant there was additional costs involved in manufacturing that product. But, you know, let's say, for example, it takes 30 to 60 days to ship here, plus the supermarkets or stores or whatever it is, you know, manufacturing plants over here. Mm have to clear out their old stock it takes time for that to move through the system right exactly yeah Mm -hmm. so different things take different amounts of time so just to give you an example of how currency changes the price of things in the short term um i think that's really important to establish the next thing is how can most people not understand this why do we have everybody on the news talking about all these other reasons other than the supply of the currency and there's a really, actually, a remarkably simple explanation for why most people are missing this. It's called CPI. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar. Price so, index, yeah. Yeah. So that's the consumer price index, right? Like you said. So uh, obviously, for anybody not familiar, that is in the UK. When we say what is the inflation rate, what we're talking about is that number. And so what that is is a it, it's called a it's like a basket of goods of consumer goods. So a government agency will take a few hundred items and they will track the changes in price of those items over time. Now, there's two problems with this, why it's not useful to understand inflation. The first one is that it excludes all the things people actually want, like homes, 
dignified futures, retirement, like energy, good food. It excludes all that stuff anyway from the beginning, mm-hmm. right? And then the things it does include, it does something called hedonic adjustments to them. So like I read these reports and they are actually arguably a little bit funny. It's very dark, but it's funny. So they'll say last year, a men's suit cost 300 pounds for a three-piece suit, but now people are more casual. So we're only going to give you a jacket. The jacket cost 250 pounds. Therefore, inflation went down. Yeah. If that makes that, sense, right? That, that, the the yeah. garment price had, it had actually increased, right? Yeah, they've changed the nature of the product to kind of hide the inflation rate within mm. it, right? Or like they'll say, okay, renting a, a two-bed flat in, you know, in East London, like a you know, thousand square foot apartment in East London cost two grand a month last year or like 10 years ago. But now TVs are flat, right? And everything's on your laptop. So you don't need as much space. So, and a 700 square foot apartment for the same price is, is means there's no inflation because you don't need the space anymore. Mm. So these are called, so it excludes the things we actually want. In the UK, we like to buy homes. Right? And the things it does include, it's like a maligned understanding. But the truth is, what inflation is, is different for everybody. If you're a chef and you're saving up to buy a home in Kent, then the inflation rate for you is the growth in the price of a house in Kent. You don't care about a 250-quid blazer anyway. Right? Mm-hmm. You're not trying to buy that. You're trying to buy a house for your family in Kent. And so the, your inflation rate has been 40% over the last two, three years. So inflation is different for everyone. It's like uh, it's a lot of good, yeah, they talk about it. Yeah, it's relative, right? It's like a vector. It's not one linear calculation. It's it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. That's really important. Yeah, okay. So cost of everything has increased and we've perhaps been not necessarily tricked but persuaded that actually the costs of increase haven't been as big because you know what they deem was something like as you say your example of three-piece suit back then now the shopping basket's changed ever so slightly so the parameters Mm. have changed so how does that form your sort of thoughts on specifically why we're short staffed and and what's the next step in this thought process Okay, so in economics, there's a really important part of it called time preference. And so if we go back to before 1914, this is going to get weird. And and for anyone listening, I promise you, I think this is very, very relative to your life. You may disagree, but I wouldn't be on here if I didn't think it was. Mm -hmm. Before 1914, gold was money, right? So, So in that time, we used gold as money and we did have paper money, but it was it was supposed to be in line with the gold that you had. So so Chris, if you had if you bought something from me, so you came into my restaurant and bought a meal, you would have gold in the bank, mm-hmm. I would have gold in the bank, and you would give me a note, right? A a one pound note, and you would give it to me. And I could then take the note you gave me to the bank and say, Chris gave me this note to say that gold is now mine. Right. And that's what money was. That's mm-hmm. why we call them banknotes. Okay. Yep. Or like they call them dollar bills in America because it would be a bill that you paid me. You paid the bill to me for the money. So the paper wasn't the money, it wasn't the value. It was a receipt for the money. Prior to that, the reason why money was invented in the first place is that we didn't use money to purchase, we used it to trade. And 
in order for us to be able to trade. We couldn't cart our four picks, three sheep, you know, perhaps a, a wooden table that we'd built everywhere. It was easier to carry coin because it was lighter yeah. and it was transference, well, right? So. Well, then that actually gets really interesting because then you start to get into the history of money, which is really fascinating. Uh, so like through history, over thousands of years, we've used all kinds of different things as money. So salt, shells, glass beads, paper, all kinds of things, right? People mm -hmm. have tried many different things. And the, the consequence of the money people chose to use was huge for the people who used it. Because if you were using glass beads in one place, right, as money, I mean, this, like, this is a harrowing story, but in West Africa, there was a settlement, a large settlement using glass beads as money about four or 500 years ago. And so in, let's just imagine there's a town of people and in that place, the technology for making glass is very basic. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, glass is scarce and therefore it can hold value because in economic scarcity means it becomes valuable. Supply right? and so, yeah. yeah. So glass is very, very scarce. So people come to understand glass as value. Then you have a ship of people from wherever, Holland or the UK, they rock up and they see this town and they can't believe these people are using glass as money. And so they sail back to wherever, so let's go to London, fill a ship up with glass, okay, and then come back to this town. And everybody in the town is shocked to see a ship of money has just arrived. And lo and behold, this, these people, these 10 guys, will buy anything you have to sell for double the price that the economy is used to selling anything for glass. So all of a sudden, everybody in this town is rushing to sell everything they have, selling all of their items, their food, their homes, even selling each other to the people on this boat until after enough time has passed that the people in that town have given away everything and all they have left is glass. Mm. And that is inflation deeply. That is, yeah. I would argue, what we are living in a slower version of right now yeah. and so when you said like we invented money i actually think that's a fascinating term because i think there's a case you made that maybe we didn't really invent money i think it just comes about as a solution to a problem that we have as people so i love to give this example of like let's imagine a world without money so let's say let's say you're a butcher mm -hmm. right so you've got a butcher shop and in this world there is no money so I'm going to throw a couple of problems at you in a world with no money and just think about how you would deal with it. So let's say it's your brother's wedding next week and you want to buy a suit from a tailor who is vegan. How do you get him to help you? Good question. Good question. How do you get someone to help? You don't necessarily have to exchange product in order to be able to purchase you could exchange okay. time which is a valuable resource as well so time expertise contacts there's plenty of things that i would barter for instead of having to default to meet okay fine so but it would be less efficient right yeah or any of those things are less efficient than running your shop as well as you could right mm -hmm. so another one would be so that's that in in economics we call that the coincidence of once what are the chances that what you have to sell is the same as what you want to buy from somebody else? Yeah. So the next, yeah, the next thing would be like, uh, be a good one would be like, uh, how long can this, this value last and how long will what you have remain valuable? So let's get and say you're that butcher in that shop in a world with no money, all your freezers are full and you've had a quiet week. 
and you've got a shop full of meat that's going to go off in like four or five days, right? So, so you've got all your value in that meat. There's, there's no such thing as money. What would you do? You can't sell it at a discount or like you'd have to start change it into anything that could last longer. So you'd be better off with apples or wheat or cars or whatever it is, but you just mm -hmm. need to get rid of it to change it into something that is more durable. Yeah, or freeze it. Yeah. So you mm -hmm. increase the longevity of it. Or perhaps you're in a position where you can give it away to the less fortunate, the more needy. So there's intrinsic Maybe. value there. But um, yeah, you agree. Mm -hmm. You need to prolong it. Otherwise, you're going to end up in a position like, for example, the unfortunate one you found yourself in where it's expired and you're not able mm. to be able to recoup your money on that. So yeah, mm -hmm. okay, fair enough. Yeah. The next one is transferring across space so let's say you owe a debt to somebody 200 miles away of some kind of value and you are a butcher there's no mm -hmm. such thing as money it's inefficient you need to pack up a van a fridge van and send something over or it's going to be complicated right yeah yeah now the biggest one the most important one is not transporting value across space it's transporting value through time that's the most important thing money must do is for it to be good money for it to function it must transport value into the future so your brother got married right at the beginning of this story. Now let's say uh, you're, you're a few years down the road and your brother now has a, just had a baby. You know, you've got a niece and you want to buy something, some value for that niece to have that's useful when she's 18. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, this is where our 5,000 day dry aged uh, beef comes in, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, okay. I hear you. <clears throat> yeah. So money isn't like an in, so much like as an invention, it's just something that naturally occurs. So all societies through civilization have added value to items beyond their utility value uh, in some way. So mm -hmm. like Romans, they took salt, you can eat salt, right? But they added monetary value to it to solve these problems we just talked about. And these, these things are the function of money through time. We took paper. Essentially, in the modern day, we took paper. Paper has a utility value. You can write on it. You can send messages, letters, whatever, right? But when we made certain types of that paper, certain colors, shapes, patterns, and said, we are, these people control how many of them there are, we give that paper more value than other paper has. Mm -hmm. Same way gold has value above the jewelry. Like 20% of all gold is used for jewelry, and the other 80% is like monetary value that is used to store and hold value for people who own it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With me? Yeah. Yep. So so you could say money was not so much as really it's a kind of an invention, but it's it's sort of like a naturally occurring thing throughout all human civilizations where people want to interact with each other without violence. Mm. Because if there's no such thing as money to trade, then things get really complicated and people end up having to fight. Money is like the thing that allows you not to have to fight and to be able to negotiate on even terms. Another yeah. good way, like just to wrap up this butcher thing, let's say you are in a world with no money and you want to hire an assistant, right? And you're like, the interview went well and you're having a conversation about uh, how much should I pay you? How do you, what is that conversation even look like without money? Mm. You know, are you paying them in 500 grams of ground beef an hour? Or maybe their last job, they worked for a, somebody who made shoes and they were paid a shoe a day. Or Like there's no way to understand the value of time. But this, so this is an interesting question because we often attribute value of time to money 
But we've seen evidently that it doesn't matter how much you pay someone. If they aren't feeling that they are learning, developing, feel like that they're being invested into as a human being and being valued, mm. the money doesn't make any difference, which is why we see mental illness and burnout with people who are earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a year because the money yeah. is not the thing that makes people tick. So mm. if someone was working in my shop and I was a butcher, it would be the transference of skills, the investment of time, you know, yes, there may be some some uh, meat or a certain payment involved, but it doesn't necessarily yeah. have to be everything that I have. So, but it's an interesting question because there's an intrinsic motivator there that doesn't often result in extrinsic reward, which is money, wealth, or power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that the take, yeah, I mean, the takeaway from this for me is that money is the thing that we use deeply to, to kind of navigate time mm -hmm. like we plan like you you pick a job and you're like okay this job pays this much and you're kind of thinking to yourself okay maybe i can buy a home in six years and you, you kind of use money to understand time mm -hmm. right like we talk about like people say time is money like i would say economically speaking it's more like money is time because as a society we have a minimum wage right and that minimum wage is like the culturally appropriate it's like the culturally deemed minimum legal value of a human hour so as you move through space you move through space in miles per hour in a car mm -hmm. and as you move through value you move through value in pounds per hour you know we'll kind of i know that sounds really weird but we'll kind of wrap, get to that later so yeah so now you get to you start to talk about this thing called time preference which is where we were so this theory basically says that when you live in an environment with sound money so when the price of everything either stays the same or falls if money is the scarcest thing in an economy then it encourages people to think and plan and live their lives in a much more long-term fashion mm -hmm. so in 1850 uh, like in london for example we we're on a gold standard right and of all the gold in the world, there's like a couple swimming pools worth of gold, right, in all the world above ground. And about 2%, give or take, gets added to that total amount every year by gold miners. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's the inflation rate of gold. Now, in London at that time, or most of the time, about 4%, 3 or 4% new houses are built or apartments or whatever, right, new places to live. So in that world when gold is your money that you're using to measure the value of, of homes, then the price of houses measured in this money actually fall. They don't rise, mm -hmm. right? It's only in an economy where the amount of money that's being added is going up quicker than the amount of houses that are being added. In that environment situation, the price of houses measured in the inflationary money goes up. But the price of a house in the UK measured in gold has stayed the same forever mm -hmm. right the price of a house measured in beef hasn't changed that much the price of a house measured in pounds has changed a lot it's the pound that's volatile not the houses yeah and that's a really important shift for like for everybody to understand is that the pound is what we are using it is as a way to see the world and to understand value and to to kind of value everything but the truth is it's really quite a skewed metric because the amount of pounds doubles and doubles and doubles every eight nine years so like it's a uh, not a really a fixed thing 
yeah at all. no I, I i understand i understand that it makes sense without talking about the great depression etc which uh you know they they reset the price of gold versus currencies and going down that route but so how does this relate to hospitality and the staffing sort of issues that we've been facing now for right well way before covid if we're completely honest it's just accelerated the process mm. i would say since the 70s it's gotten mm. really it's going to become every generation of chefs says to the next generation oh you guys are not as hard working as we were you know, there's not as many of you as, you know, it's, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. So this idea of time preferences, when you live in a world where the price of everything stays the same and your parents saw that and your grandparents saw that culturally, then you have every reason to kind of train and plan for a really long career and think out really long term. Right. When you're living in a world where the price of everything is rising quickly, then you're incentivized to think much more short term because you don't have a way to plan out into the future. Mm -hmm. So in a gold standard world where the price of houses stayed the same, you could be like, okay, fine, I'm gonna get a job as a carpenter or a chef or whatever. And you know that carpenters have always earned this much, houses have always cost this much, and you can easily see your future. And you could be like, okay, eight, 10 years apprenticeship, makes perfect sense, I'm gonna have a dignified life if I do this. And like a good example is, like if you wanna make it more recent is, imagine you're a chef in 1990s London, Okay, you're, you've just started your first day, right? You're getting your ass kicked in some basement somewhere. And the chef that you're looking over to, the head chef is like chucking spoons at you. But you can smile because that chef, in 1990, your head chef had a nice house, two cars, uh, a family, a couple of holidays a year. He was set, you know, he was good. So you were, you could suffer, you could endure a difficult working environment because you could look over at that restaurant and see that chef and see what he has and it it's worth it to you mm -hmm. right it becomes very worthwhile today let's say that same example you've got a chef starting on his first day in that same kitchen in 2023 he looks over at the head chef the head chef is still scrambling together for a deposit for a flat he'll never be able to buy because this price is going up and up and up faster than he can save for it right that that chef is like 40 year old chef he's looking up to is probably destitute. So I'm not saying that people can verbally work this out and say, okay, because of inflation and the economy and all this stuff, I'm not saying your average like Demi is, is breaking all this down and like doing it kind of openly. But I think we can understand this stuff kind of subconsciously. Like a good example of this is like a, a, a six year old kid can play football perfectly right? Kid can play football, no problem, mm -hmm. uh, and can follow all the rules. But you, after the game, if you ask that kid to explain and articulate the rules of football to you, he can't do it. You take, it'll be, he'll be like 10, 11, 12 before he can do it. So, but if other people in that game, that kid, that six-year-old kid, other people start to break the rules or the game becomes unwinnable, the kid won't do an evaluation and say, well, he contravened that rule and therefore I'm not doing this anymore. He will just be given presented with an emotional response that tells him don't play this game anymore this game isn't worth it and it will become unenjoyable and the kid will just stop yeah and i think you could say the same thing for work right like the back to that 1990s chef when he started the game was winnable right it was worth it the game was good like you started you're going to suffer you're going to work really hard but it's worth it and mm -hmm. you get a dignified life and retirement out of it and you can see that ahead of you in your head chef or whoever Today, the young person is presented with, should I work, right? 
should I go and, and graft? And he's presented with the, you know, the, what's supposed to be the reward for that. And I think the reward isn't worth it. And the game is, is not winnable, right? If, you have, if you're a CDP and you're on 30 grand a year, you're going to work what, 90 years before you can buy like a house where you work, you know, like, which is so ironic, isn't it? it just shows how quickly it's changed. Because even five years ago, CDPs were on 20 to 22 grand a year. And now it's gone mm. up to 30k, which was right. the same but money that I buy with it? sales manager. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So the rate of inflation, so the cost of goods is rising quicker than the, the average salary mm. is, which means it's yeah. it's becoming harder and harder to afford what we would deem even you know fairly recently is essentials such as house energy food is becoming mm. harder and it's yeah it's definitely a, a bigger challenge yeah and if you're talking about really hard work like if you're talking about this this idea of time preference which we'll kind of keep dipping into is like uh when you're working there are different preferences of time that people take over work so you could take two examples so let's say we've got a chef with a slightly shorter time preference who is working for a temp agency, you know, who's like flipping steaks and stuff and he's, he's on like 30 quid an hour, right? Fair enough, nothing wrong with that. But then you might have another chef and she has decided to go and like, go and to sort of grind it out in the basement of a two star, 18 hour days, getting paid much less. But her time preference is much longer, right? Her mm -hmm. time preference is, is five, 10, 15, 20 years out. And she's thinking, I'm gonna get, a better overall future out of this. Whereas the other the other guy, his time preference is slightly shorter, right? His time preference is, I'm gonna pay rent this month, maybe I've got a kid at school, but his scenario is different. And so when you have sound money and the price of everything in the economy measured in your money is falling, then you're incentivized to work hard for the long term to save. But if you're living in a world where the price of everything is slowly rising or quickly rising, the things you really want, home, dignified future, retirement, lifestyle, right? Those are the things we really want. We, mm -hmm. I'm not looking for good goods and services. That's not Goods and services are not like reaching into my soul and making me drive a great career out of life, right? I don't care about goods and services. I care about how good is my future going to be if I do this now. That's the deep part of this. And so when we're measuring in, in this money, it's, of course, is a real problem. And it makes, this always happens. Like this is all through the history of money. Every time you have inflation, people don't want to work. The society crumbles. The Romans did it. They cut the coins. They kept cutting the coins and cutting the coins until nobody wants to work anymore. The empire collapses. This happens yeah. every single time without fail. And these, it's called, we call them fiat, right? Like fiat currencies. They all come down eventually because... I you just get inflated away. Yeah, and I think that's a really good opportunity for us just to pause just for mm -hmm. just for a quick break and um, we'll be back in just a few seconds. If you're enjoying this week's episode, consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier, happier, and more sustainable industry by purchasing some of our branded merchandise. We have a whole range of t-shirts, hoodies, chef's jackets, well-being journals, plus a whole host more available on Worldwide Dispatch. All funds raised from sales of these items go towards free-to-access e-learning content, as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health.
Okay, and we are back. So, fiat cu- currency is is commonly referred to as our day to day currency, right? It's our mm-hmm. it's our usual spending yeah. money. It's dollars, it's pounds, it's it's yen, it's whatever it might be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so onto the staff, right? So you're opening a restaurant. You're going to hire 15 young staff, right? Young people. But now, if you are starting as a chef, you're going to be working you know, many, many, many dozens of years, maybe even hundreds of years, if we keep going at the rate we're going before you can even think about buying a home mm. or like a, a dignified retirement. And so the game's, the game's kind of fucked, right? But, but the, the game's but, fucked for all industries, and if that's the case, because ultimately your, your time is, or your value of time is not what it was. So, you know, mm. whether you're a banker, whether you're a refuse collector whatever it is it's it, that same dichotomy is there right sure but if you hold scarce assets then you're rising right think of this this inflation situation as like water mm-hmm. and the amount of currency is, is the ocean right and the amount of currency is rising and rising and rising right and if you own a house it's like owning a boat and it's going to float yeah right because the houses are not being built as quickly as the money's being printed so if you and all these different scarce things float at different rates the currency is the worst thing. So if your chances are, if you're starting out as a chef, you probably don't own a lot of scarce valuable assets. You don't own a lot of art. You don't own stocks. You don't own property in most mm-hmm. cases, right? And it's yeah. the younger people starting their career who we need in our industry. Agreed. Right. So we, so so we're kind of like, how would you say this? We we're kind of like on the margin. Like we suffer from this the most because we need those young people to come in, and they don't have the assets that protect you from inflation at all. So they're the most exposed and they get screwed the most. And those are the people trying to trying to understand and perceive the future value of their life. And it, it just makes people nihilistic and hopeless. Okay. So what's yeah. the, what's the, what's the way of fixing this? How do we get around this? Okay. Because it is a fantastic career. I mean, you've, you've got multiple businesses in, in this career and, you know, we see that more and more, ironically to this story, more and more college and catering students are coming through. Now we're getting mm. more and more secondary school students actually looking at this as a career of choice. So what do we need to give people? How do we educate people in order to be able to ride out this current situation? What's the solution? We need to fix the money. Mm-hmm. We need to fix the money. Like, and that's really, it's as simple as that. There's no ifs or buts or ways around it. You could look at this problem and you could say, okay, the solution is to buy a house, but you can't buy 400 pounds of a house every month, right? You could say, okay, I'm going to buy stocks, right? I'm going to buy Apple stock or Google or something like that. But all companies fail eventually. And you, if you're a chef, you don't want to be wasting your time reading like uh, statements about different companies and trying to trade stocks, right? Mm-hmm. So it's and stocks are not something that you can like pin your future on. It's not something that's solid enough to like really, really like deeply value in your life. So houses are too they're too expensive. Gold doesn't really work anymore. Like gold is kind of like flat or losing value because the more gold if the price of gold goes up, gold miners will respond to that by mining much more gold that year, flood the market, the price will fall. Yeah. So the market cap, the all the value of all the gold, if you don't know what market cap that I mean, I'm sure you do. But um, like the market cap of gold goes up, but your price of your gold coin, your ounce of gold doesn't mm-hmm. really, right? A little bit, but not that much. Yeah. So gold doesn't work. Stocks don't really work. Houses don't really work. Okay. So this is where well, this is going to get a bit weird. And 
if any of you are listening to this, I think you will have heard of this stuff, but it's, I'm going to try and explain it in a kind of unbiased way. And I think you won't have heard of this before. Okay. So I want to start out by saying I'm generally against crypto. Okay. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea at all personally, mm -hmm. but uh, Bitcoin has really changed the game uh, in terms of people trying to preserve purchasing power through something that is scarce that nobody can make more of, nobody is in charge of, and nobody can control. Decentralized currency, right? Yeah, exactly. So basically, if you don't, do you know the history of Bitcoin? Do you know who made it and well, not who, but like why and where it came from? And Satoshi, right? So it was, right. Uh, it was designed as a hedge, or not even a hedge against inflation. It was designed as a currency that no one owned, no one had control over. There was only a finite supply of this. Mm -hmm to ultimately act as a better store of value than perhaps gold or currencies would do, right? Mm -hmm. And would you say that's played out the way he hoped it would have? I think it's done pretty well, yeah. I mean, to take something that you could have bought less than 10 years ago for a pound and its current value is around about $32,000, mm. you know, it's, it's done that. However, what is interesting is the psychology the mass psychology of individuals believing what we get told by banks etc financial institutions and, and mm. i should stay at this juncture none of us are uh, financial advisors you know this doesn't constitute financial advice anything that's discussed on, yeah, on this show. Sure. but i would say it's a disruptor uh, that current standard processes such as banks etc are quite keen to well, we know that at this moment in time, banks are actually investing into digital currency options because they know that mm. this isn't going to go away. But the digital currency options, CDCs, that are being produced by banks are going to be owned by banks. So they will be controlled in the same way that if you go to a bank right now and said to the bank, can I have £50,000 out, please, or £100,000 out, chances are they would say to you, I can't give you that in cash because I don't actually, it's just a number on the screen. And we've actually... Mm invested this into something else and it's being floated at the moment so i think it's uh, an interesting concept i've lost a lot of money personally on cryptocurrencies i made an awful lot in a very short period of time and i lost it all and i lost even more trying to chase it and uh, no, so i think that. it's a very dangerous option to get into if you're looking at getting rich quick which is what you were saying earlier which is everyone wants something now they want to be able to mm. reach that goal now and i think that that if you go into it with that psychology um yeah. you're going to, you're going to lose a lot of money so it's very yeah. very yeah asset. that's for sure yeah i think um like i said i would make a really clear distinction like with bitcoin to be clear there's nobody in charge nobody can fuck with it nobody can change it really like if today china russia India all got together and they said, listen, we're going to stop everything else. All we're going to try and do is change Bitcoin. They couldn't do anything. It wouldn't, mm -hmm. wouldn't matter. Right? So this thing is pretty fixed, right? And it's never skipped to beat and nobody is in charge of it. Every single other crypto, one person could just change it, right? They can say it, buy it, they're going to screw you over. Like those, all those other cryptos are businesses and they all have people in charge of them. You can Google them and look at their faces. You like, there's no CEO of Bitcoin. It's, it's really not the same stuff. So mm -hmm. I don't think Bitcoin is is a get rich quick scheme. It's a don't get poor slowly scheme, like properly understood. So like if I can give you some like other ways to think about this, let's say 10 years ago, you bought a house in Nottingham, right? 
and that house 10 years ago was 150 grand at the time fair price for a house in nottingham if you bought that and you were thinking in pounds that was a great investment right you bought it 10 years ago 150 grand five years later the house might be worth what 200 grand and you're you know in the morning drinking a cup of coffee thinking i'm a genius i've made 50 grand on this house right this is a good buy okay another five years goes by to today that house may be worth 250 grand right mm -hmm. and so you're thinking wow i bought this house for 150 grand and then 200 now 250. thinking in pounds it was a good decision if pounds was your your value language it was a good call if yep. bitcoin was your value language it was horrendous decision right because that house thinking in bitcoin would have cost twelve thousand bitcoins 10 years ago five years later would have cost 50 bitcoins or something and today it would have cost 10 bitcoins so thinking in pounds, you thought you were doing well. Thinking in Bitcoin, you bought the house and you were like, oh no, what have I done? And you watch the value of it crash 99.9%, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. So through that lens, like things start to look really different because when, you, when I talk about the language of value that you're using, a good example of that is if you've, have you ever lived in another country than the UK? Not lived, no. Yeah. Like if you go to like move, you know when you go on holiday, and you're like going to into a place with a different currency you're buying stuff and you're translating the currency into the new currency and then you're understanding value that way yeah so if like a bottle of water is a quid you translate it into euros and that's how you think right but yeah. if you live somewhere for a few months you start to adopt the new currency deeply and you don't need the pound to understand value anymore mm -hmm. you can just switch to the new currency and like i would say it's possible to do the same thing thinking in bitcoin Mm -hmm. And like me and we'll get to like the restaurant that I tried this at for, for a couple of years, we kind of switched our thinking over to Bitcoin. And when you start to look at houses and cars and everything, and you really try and think in Bitcoin, you see a really bright future because what you see is a world of where the price of everything around you is falling because your Bitcoin is digitally fixed. It's so fixed. It can never be made more of and literally everything else it's it's possible to make more of so the price of everything measured in bitcoin always falls over the long term mm -hmm. so like like the price of houses has been cut in half if bitcoin was your money over the last seven or eight months mm -hmm. right and the price of houses has gone down 99 percent over the last you know five ten years when you're thinking as an individual if you choose to switch to bitcoin you are living in a world where the price of everything around you is falling and the future feels really optimistic um, and it feels really good. Mm -hmm. And you just see a very bright world and it makes, you, it, it makes you think so long term and feel so much better. So this is a common occurrence for people that kind of go down this economic rabbit hole. So I thought there's something in this and this is really this Bitcoin thing is making me want to work harder and more long term and it's making me feel better about working hard. And mm -hmm. I was like, what can that, what is that? What can that be? How can that be? How can that be the case that by using another money is changing my, who I am and how I value everything? So I thought this would be interesting. So I'm in Taiwan right now and the inflation here is incredibly high. It's horrendously high. For, to give you an example, to earn enough to buy an average house with an average salary in the UK uh, is about 12 years. Okay, for the average person, for the average house here, it's about 150 years. Okay, yeah. So the average apartment here is like three, four million pounds for like a shoebox. 
right. and the average salary is less than it is in the UK. Right. So, so the people here, when you hire them, every single person in every single restaurant is kind of like hopeless a bit. They don't have any kind of optimism that they have is like, is almost delusional because they don't have a real shot. Like they're going to work any job that they can get. If you're starting a restaurant, it's hundreds and hundreds of years. You just, you're, it's a hundred percent that you're fucked. Okay. hundred mm-hmm. percent. This like the total value of all the property here in Taiwan is like five quadrillion NTD of the whole country. And like 50 years ago, it was like two, three trillion. So it's, it's not a few percent, it's double, 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 doubled. And it's, it's just impossible. meant that, yeah, it's just a completely unwinnable game. It's just, a, it's a joke, right? It's incredibly cruel, incredibly cruel. So when you open a restaurant and you sit down with everyone and you explain to them, look, this is what's been happening. It's really weird to understand. I know it's hard to believe that you could have misunderstood something as fundamental as money up until now. But there is this problem. And if you can consciously understand it, and then there's this thing called Bitcoin. It's not what you think it is. It's this is what it is. We run a node in the restaurant. We run computers that verify it. And everyone's equal. And what you're kind of saying is not like, we're not trying to predict the future. We're not saying that this is like a dead set. But what we're saying is that before you were definitely fucked. And here's a way you might not be. Uh, And it changes everything. And you end up with, a team of people who become healthier, become much happier, end up getting in better shape. Everyone gets really fit because they're like, want to take care of their health because they're looking forward to the future again mm-hmm. in a way they never were before. It's, it's extraordinary what happens. And so I tried this experiment in one of my restaurants here called Fermi, where I pay the staff a small amount of Bitcoin from me added to their regular salary every month. And we're the only fully staffed restaurant I know of in the city. And the restaurant runs itself absolutely gorgeously. And I have other restaurant here, restaurants here that struggle and suffer. And so I'm not the good thing that's making it that way. It's, I think the difference really is that these guys have sound money that rises in value relative to everything else. So these guys see a world where the price of everything for them is falling, while everyone around them sees a world where the price of everything is rising. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, perfect, so I, perfect, yeah. perfect sense. And and I think a lot of people will be listening to this now going, oh, well, you know, people have told me it's a scam, it's fraud, it's whatever it might be. And it's a still relatively new asset class. It's only been going for around about 12 years. And no one really knows for sure, but history dictates, you know, you, your history based on data shows that it does have an increasing value. Yeah. However... How do you negotiate with the team? So undeniably, you're saying that actually by paying people in a different currency, a currency with a finite value is something that can't be increased, which won't change, can only hopefully increase based on the native currency of that country, right? How do you then navigate wild price swings? You know, swings where, for example, the dollar value of Bitcoin goes from 69000 all the way down to you know eighteen thousand. How? Because that mm-hmm. there is a very you're watching your wealth effectively slip away in that moment. How mm-hmm. do you navigate that with? Well, Bitcoin goes through four year cycles, uh, so it goes through every four years. There's like uh, the new. To explain this, we have to go back to the basics of it. Let's imagine that you are Satoshi, 
and you want to your objective is to create a free and open money for the human race to set people free from like inflation which is like a kind of watered down form of slavery mm. right if you're working harder and harder for a currency that's worth less and less is is quite cruel right so that's your express objective is i want to use software to set the human race free of this problem so you want to issue a new money for everyone to use you want to engineer it how who do you give it to you're saying there's only going to be 21 million but like how do you hand it out what's fair there's no way right you're not going to start with it all yourself you want it to be earned so that happens through this this thing called bitcoin mining so that is uh, where computers exchange energy guess a number and that's is how the new amount of bitcoin gets added to the total supply and that's what happened for 100 years or so until we get to the full 21 million and every 4 years the amount of bitcoin being added every 10 minutes gets cut in half and half and half and half mm-hmm. so there's all these people around the world like what i'm doing with my restaurant millions of people around the world are doing this like they worked this out they understood the money thing they understood the economic thing they didn't get sidetracked by the crypto thing or maybe they did and then they learned the harsh lesson like you did and then they kind of realized that like the stability of this bitcoin thing that can't be changed is worth it and so over time you have this growing adoption of people buying and saving in this money the way we do versus the amount of new bitcoin that's coming in gets cut in half every 4 years so the stock to, are you familiar with stock to flow mhm so like for anyone listening stock to flow means the total amount of of something so let's say 90% of all the bitcoin is held by people like me and i will never sell it ever but i'll never exchange it for pounds or dollars i've no plans to do that so and there's a lot of people like us we just keep it forever so on the market the bitcoin that's being bought and sold is the the remaining 10% right mhm so the the stock is the 90% and the flow is the 10% and so the miners adding the new bitcoin that rate is balanced with the new with the people buying bitcoin but what happens is every 4 years the amount of bitcoin the miners issue into the flow gets cut in half and that sends the price through the roof and you get this big bubble and mania and everyone's talking about it and then it crashes back down to the realistic value so when bitcoin was at 69 or 64000 it was overvalued you know it's not like i'm not saying they're saying oh it should be that now it should have always been that no it's just started at 1 cent and is now 30 grand and like yeah it's going to be rocky but i'd much rather win in a volatile fashion than lose slowly and I, like all the staff would feel the same way i think like i'm not yeah. talking about keeping all of your money in bitcoin like that's not what i do with the staff at fermi but for 2 years i buy them all about 30 quid of bitcoin every month without fail and give it to them all individually and they yeah. just slowly see it just like okay it's better but no or whatever but like the point the point is they have some hope and it's the best performing asset the human race has ever had by a long way by like 300x and this is why i think people are maybe underestimating it a little bit you know so mhm oh god okay i'm just trying to think about how i how Mate, i Mate honestly tear it apart please you don't need to be polite like rip this to, rip this apart because we'll get to No 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 i so i do not disagree with the concept at all <laughs> i think it's a fantastic concept but for context so I don't just trade forexes currencies cryptocurrencies etc I've actually spent a lot of time like doing a lot of technical analysis on these currencies and mm-hmm. 
there's a discrepancy in what the global understanding is on things like Bitcoin halving, for example, every four years. I would challenge you to perhaps have a look at peaks and, and bottoms of markets. You'll see very quickly that the four years is three years, four months, and three years, nine months. And yeah, sure. It, it, yeah. it changes. So it doesn't work around this Bitcoin halving, the peaks and the troughs. I you mean also like global liquidity? No, as in like at the actual way that the you know the four years everyone's saying March of next year or whenever it might be when the four year moment is up that's going to be a brilliant period of time. However, I think that we will probably see something happen before then in terms of you know an increase in price. The other thing to pay attention to with this is market structure. So with technical analysis, you can you can invest in technical. So when you spend your money and you invest in currency or trading. You do it by a technical analysis or fundamental analysis. And what we're talking mm -hmm. about here in this particular conversation is fundamental analysis, which is long term, the store of this product uh, or the value of this product will increase, providing you've got a long term view of this and, and you're not looking at the markets on a daily or weekly basis. Mm. Sure. Technical analysis shows us something that's slightly different. And that's not to say that in 50, 60 years, the value of this asset won't be a lot higher than it is currently because no one really knows. But technically, what we're seeing is actually a change in market structure with this particular asset class, which could mean that we end up in a, a what we call as a, a, and you're probably familiar with this, but a bear market for an extended mm -hmm. period of time because Bitcoin is directly correlated based on data with the stock market and the overall D Dow Jones Industrial Average. Now, at the moment, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has been on an upwards trajectory for quite an extended period of time. Again, that's showing signs of actually weakening of, of, as a bubble pop, which effectively means stocks and shares could dramatically decrease in price. And historically, Bitcoin has been tied to that asset class, although we like to think it's separate. When you look and you overlay the two, you'll see that the peaks and the troughs are at the same time. So I would just be wary, I think, from my personal experience as an, as an analyst looking at this going, Bitcoin is only going one way. And especially with this next rise, we are already in a, a bull phase. So we are already in a phase where Bitcoin is increasing. However, I think we just need to be mindful that when we think it's going to go to 100 or 150K or 200K, that potentially it might just stop. It might just stop at 35. It might just stop at 40 and then reverse. So I think we just fundamentals, long-term fundamentals are one thing. And I think there's no denying that if you bought Bitcoin back 10 years ago, that the currency value of that has risen and has increased. History and data shows that. But I think that if people are looking at investing into this with a view to buying a house in 10 years' time, mm. do so cautiously. But it's interesting for me to have this conversation, understanding that actually the your very point and the very reason that you've come on here is to show that actually if you get people thinking about long-term value, mm. they work differently and they work uh, more sustainably and the business is healthier. So I'm not poo-pooing your ideas. I'm just saying that for anyone that's listening to this, just be, be it's taken me three years of daily learning to mm. understand what you're talking about in quite a great deal of depth. So I would just say that anyone who's looking at this, if you decide to go down this route, 
whether it is investing some of your own money and paying your staff and, and getting them to understand this journey as well brilliant you know if, if it works uh, for your business which it quite clearly does then awesome go for it but just be wary that it's not going to be a case of waking up in 10 years time and your uh, your bitcoin's worth you know 200k or 400k or a million whatever people are saying about it mm. that's based on my experience again i'm not a financial advisor you know i'm not sat on lamborghinis and other things because ultimately any of this stuff is long term it's not just a quick overnight success yeah but you know what are your <clears throat> thoughts to that i think it's valid i mean like you know, i'd be a fool to disagree but it, if you but i like what you're talking about in terms of technical analysis is great if you're if you're trying to trade a market but if you're just trying to have a shot at a dignified future i think it's worth looking into this a lot more deeply it probably takes like 10 50 maybe 100 hours of really mm-hmm. understanding the problem of money and like like i said at the beginning i personally think bitcoin is is the solution to this because it's fixed. Humans have never had anything that's fixed before and everything mm. else isn't fixed, right? If the price of houses go up, we build more houses, flood the market, housing price crash. Price of gold goes up, we mine more gold, the price of gold falls, right? Anything, anything. If the price of Apple stock goes up, Apple will issue more stock. Price. You, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, there, there has never been anything that's finite in all human history. And then the one time we managed to create something, it went up 3 million percent and is still really high. Yeah. Like if humans had, let's just say, like if humans had been able to engineer perfect money, because money has always been a problem for humans for thousands of years. We've never had perfect money. It's, mm-hmm. it's a nightmare. For thousands of years, you know, one tribe has shells, one tribe has beads, and that tribe knows where to get more shells and they enslave these guys. And it's just been a nightmare. Like we have a government that, uh, realizes to get a way to trick people into using paper as money and then we get enslaved by them. Like it's just over through history, this has always been the case. And yeah. if the way that we were able to unleash information with the internet, we've been able to unleash value. Like if that had happened and humans had actually managed to engineer perfect money and it was slowly spreading throughout the you know the population, what would that look like? Because I think it might look like this mm. personally. Yeah, there's no denying it's fascinating, and and I'm I'm very much pro cryptocurrencies personally. Mm. I have investment, long term investment in cryptocurrency that I won't touch for ten, fifteen years because of Mm. the the very conversation that we're having. But Mm. that's investment that if I was to lose, I wouldn't be destitute. That's money that I've saved up and I've made a risk call on, and if I lose it, I lose it. There is no denying this. I think it does, from a society point of view, throw up a a couple of, or quite a few unknowns for me, which is, you Mm -hmm. know, society as we know it could be very, very different. But as a community, we like to, well, a lot of us like to know exactly where we stand, what, you know, what day of the week it is, what time, you know, where the money's coming from, how to access it. When all of that control, that global power is just stripped away because of this asset class that no one controls what happens you know where does society have to go through a complete breakdown in order to be able to rebuild itself and rebuild its structures uh i mean that gets really interesting man i think right now what we have is opaque right Mm -hmm. like if you're you're holding pounds you're selling your life to earn these pounds but somebody else is able to print them like for, for anybody that doesn't understand this most debt like if you 
this isn't true in all cases, but generally it's true. If you go to a bank and get a mortgage, okay, you walk into a bank. I'm just going to make this really simple. You walk into a bank on a Tuesday morning and get a mortgage, right? 250 grand. That money didn't exist until you took out that mortgage. That money was synthesized at that moment and added to the total supply, right? So you, by adding that 250 grand to all the pounds, you essentially just very slightly devalued all the other pounds. And everybody's doing this all the time, right? So if you're smart, you're in a lot of debt in this world because it creates a, a crazy world where people are incentivized to be in debt, not have value and think short term. And what kind of happens, like if you just want to talk about the big, big picture in terms of economics is people are incentivized to be rational. So in a fixed money, sound money environment, you don't really have a way to cheat the system. You have to like invent electricity or a plane or something like that to get rich. You have to like create a radio or if you want to be a musician in a sound money world, they would have had to spend 20, 30, 40 years, become a composer and compose a masterpiece, right? Because everybody's incentivized to think long-term and you really have to create value for other people in order for them to part with their money that they believe will hold future, will hold value into the future. But if you have a society where people, where you don't hold value well, then people were very kind of frivolous and short-term with, with value and with money. Like, and things just become lesser and lesser quality. Like, I'll, t- I'll give you a beautiful example of this, right? This stuff happened in 1914. This was the day it changed. So we had sound money for a long, long time. And then in 1914, the guy that was in charge of the Bank of England and his deputy, they, they did something that's really remarkable. And this only came to light in 2017. So in the beginning of 1914, the, the UK government wanted to join the First World War. Okay, so they issued a war bond to all the people in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the bond was, I think, uh, a, I think it was about 13 million pounds, something like that. Anyway, they issued this bond. So what they're saying was, if you're a citizen of the UK, if you buy this bond, we'll give you 10% of your money back. And like this is like a higher interest bond than a normal government bond. I mean, we can get into bonds if you need to, but... They offer the war bond, right? Which is gives you, uh, if you buy a bond, it's like you're buying, you're giving the government your money and they're telling you, we're going to give you this percent back as interest. And that's why governments have, yeah, this is why governments have interest rates. Like when you hear all the government's raising or lowering the interest rate, everybody thinks about mortgages, but actually what it means is that's the, the, the money your government is willing to give you in exchange for borrowing your money. And that's called a bond. So, so they issued this war bond. And nobody bought it, like less than 20, 30% of people bought it. Okay. And so that was a real problem. So what the Bank of England did was they created fake money. They printed money. They broke the rule. So the, the head of the Bank of England and his assistant did it. They gave themselves the money that they created and bought the bonds. And then they had the Financial Times publish a lie, which they admitted to uh, recently, to say that we did lie about this. And they said that all oh, the war bond for the first world war was oversubscribed everybody loved it and that means the country wants to go into this war and they use that to justify entering the conflict so in a sound money world if a government wants to fight a war they need to actually have the money to do it right like before 1914 we didn't have massive world wars where tens of millions of people have to die for years and years and years because one one side wants to fight another side they run out of gold 
it's over. They're mm-hmm. done. But when you can print money and you live in this fiat world, one side wants to fight another side. They run out of money. They're just going to keep printing until they've extracted all the value away from all the money all their people hold. And both sides can do that. This is how you get massive world wars. So in a sound money world, like governments don't have the ability to print value. Like how can you stage like a massive conflict? And then the counter to that, which I think you might be thinking is, well, what if like uh, one country attacks another country and that country can't defend itself, right? That would be a problem, wouldn't it? If one country could print money and the other country couldn't, then the one that couldn't would lose. This is why you need a neutral global replacement of money so that it kind of like depowers like the world's militaries in tandem rather than like randomly. Um, yeah. So yeah. You could I mean, say, very- Bearing in mind the last depression, the Great Depression that we were in, the only thing that dragged us out of that was World War One, which oh, man, stimula- the, the stimulated the economy. Was, so the Great Depression was caused by money printing. Well, the which Great is, Depression was was a direct result of money printing. Which is, if you look at the technical side of things, we are seeing what we saw back in 1920. Not necessarily, well, there is increased conflict, ironically enough, as well. But I um. Listen, you and I, I think, could talk for a, a lot longer. And I really appreciate you bringing this conversation to the table because I think it's it's interesting. It's undeniably, obviously, had benefits for your restaurants or restaurant. Are you looking at rolling this out over the next, over your two uh, Yeah, I'm working on, um, I've written kind of like a manuscript of a book about this, which just goes into much more detail. And yeah, I'll definitely do it with all of the businesses I do. It's like, it's, it's like having your hand untied. Like, it's so much easier when everyone isn't miserable about the future. You know, the, mate, the last thing I'll say is just to like give people something to think about. If you, if any of you have made it this far, like I'm amazed, <laughs> but like this thing I'm saying about 1914 and how the world changed as you're driving around the UK, look at the buildings that were built before and after 1914 and look how long term the people who built those were thinking. You will see such a shocking difference in the quality of buildings before 1914 and after, it's totally different, right? Because before 1914, you were building these big, old, strong Victorian houses designed to, designed to last forever with high ceilings, bay windows, like they were built for people to live in. After 1914, when it's smart to have debt, we started to build cheap buildings that were designed for mortgages to live in and debt to live in and money to live in. And the people living in them is kind of an afterthought. So I would just say, dive into this stuff. What I'm talking about is called Austrian economics. So there's like a this thing called Keynesian economics, which is the guy that supported the this First World War money printing thing, that, this 100-year experiment we've all been on. Mm-hmm. And then there's a much older school of economics, which now gets referred to as Austrian economics. And it really talks about these kind of concepts and principles. And it has helped me make so much sense of the world. And it was like being blind before I kind of dove into this. It's a real kind of, it's a bit of an intellectual mission, honestly, but it's, it's interesting and it's really made things better. So I, appreciate I hope that. it helps. Yeah. yeah, no, I listen, I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions. If people wanted to reach out to you and talk to you about this and explore this in more detail, where mm-hmm. can they find you? Uh, Instagram's good at James Sharman Chef. Yeah, that's probably the best place to get me. Or you can just email me james at jamessharman.net. Yeah. And on, if any of you, if anyone wants to disagree or tear this apart i would i have been begging to find a way that i'm wrong 
I would love to find it because I'm obviously I'm you know I want to know I just can't find the hole good on you man I appreciate this thank you ever so much for your time today sure mate pleasure Chris I think what you're doing is awesome man take care thank you cheers